0: Hi, I'm Mara Webster with Creative Company. And today I'm so thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Clive Owen, who plays the role of Samuel Spade and is an executive producer on the series, Mongeur Spade. And starting off, I wanted to talk about, obviously you came into this show as a huge fan of the character, a huge fan of the Maltese Falcon. I know that you even had a poster in your home already um, and Humphrey Bogart's work. And I was really interested in how you answered the question for yourself of how much do I want to lean into the iconography that people are already familiar with, you know, and re myself with all of that work and the character that already exists? And how much do I want to create a very different space? Because obviously we're taking the character forward several years into a completely different story in a completely different setting. And I think you've done a really beautiful job at capturing both of those spaces in your performance.
1: Um, it's yeah. That's a, I mean, it's a good question because it was kind of both really. I wanted uh, it wasn't. I didn't have this strong instinct of oh, I need to put my mark on it. I need to come in and reinvent this whole thing. I, I was such a fan of the original source material. You know, I'm a big Bogart fan. I'm a big fan of the Dashiell Hammett book. Uh, I'm a big fan of noir So it was kind of both. Scott did a lot of the work of the reimagining by setting it twenty years in the you know, ahead of the the, the book, living in a, a completely new environment, you know, the, the fact that I'm living in the south of France already, it makes the noir thing very different because the environment is so different. Um, and so I was not like, I, I wasn't nervous about leaning in because it felt to me, we're setting up a new world, we're setting up a new world for Spade, but I still wanted the origins of the guy. I wanted you to feel that this guy Twenty odd years ago, was a private detective in San Francisco, and and I wanted to track that through as well. So, and and you know, many years ago, I was um, I was I was attached with a studio and had the rights to play Chandler's Marlowe. And I know it's it's a very difficult thing, noir, in some ways, because we're so familiar with it. And and when you do all the classic things, people get so familiar so quickly and think, oh, I know what this is. I know what noir is. I know what that. And so the the reimagining it and putting it into the south of France was, was a very clever idea, I think, in terms of a fresh approach.
0: I agree and and I love that one of the ways in which you stepped into the character for yourself was in really using the dialogue of Humphrey Bogart and recording just the audio from his movies and his performances and just listening to that on repeat to really find the specific sense of of speed because it's a very kind of restrained character but with a lot of speed to the dialogue Um, and so how did you come up with the idea of like taking that audio and how did that really help you in finessing the way that you wanted to deliver it?
1: I think because Again, uh, we're shooting in the south of France, primarily with French actors. And I thought, I'm English, playing American, speaking some French. So I needed a grounding for myself. You know, if everybody, if we were shooting in the States and everybody, you know, I would feel like we would all find that thing together. But I I felt a little alone in terms of like grounding it in that original thing. So I needed something vocal, an audio, you don't have to push me to to drink in Humphrey Bogart's films you know what I mean so I just saw it as this great opportunity oh I have to do this, it's for this gig and I, I, I did that and I lent in and I really looked at him and I lifted all of just his dialogue from both the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca nobody else speaking, just his dialogue, lifted it out put it on one audio file and that was kind of my grounding every day I put it in I've listened to it and it would just set me and, and ground me for the day's work
0: and I, I think the idea of, of having those two spaces of a really speedy delivery of dialogue when there's longer monologues and also a character that very much also holds himself back and and keeps himself quite still and stoic a lot of the times is such an interesting space to create when it coexists side by side um, and so how did you set about making sure that you were having both of those things in sync with one another?
1: Well, it really came from like looking, thinking about Bogart. And then I called Scott and I said, one thing I've discovered is whenever he has, you know, any reasonable size chunk of dialogue, he's really fast. We think of him as laconic, easy, laid back. Actually, he's super nimble. He's very dexterous with his language. And, you know, you can tell that, you know, he did theatre and stuff because he's, he, he shapes and really sort of work, you know works a whole speech, but then flies through it. And I think one of the things that I love about him as an actor, and I would argue you could throw him in a film tomorrow and he'd be believable. Like some actors, they don't, you know, they won't stand that test of time. They'd be mannered. It would be a style of acting that maybe has changed. But Bogart would be believable if he if he rocked up in, in something tomorrow. But it, it was really... I, I said to Scott, what what is really interesting is he never milks anything. He never overindulges. He never over If If the dialogue is there and the dialogue's great and the dialogue has good rhythm, you kind of just let it do the work and you rip through it and you don't take too much time. I mean, the whole the whole thing of spade is that he's very very contained and we know he has emotions but they're very very held he doesn't overexclaim he's not that's not what those classic iconic characters are they keep things very very tight and uh so that's yeah what i concentrated on really yeah.
0: And that's such a great point about these aren't characters. They're overly emotive. And, you know, where your version of the character is in a space where he lost his wife and he had this really beautiful relationship where he was incredibly close to her. Um, and it's not something where he's discussing that sense of loss with other characters or confiding in anybody about how he feels, but it carries throughout the entire series. And so yeah. how did you find the approach for how is he going to carry this sense of loss and this connection to memory when it's not a verbal expression?
1: Well, I'm hugely helped by by Scott and his writing because he places that throughout. There are moments where we know he's feeling deeply about, you know, the loss of her. So, you know, that there is, is it's is just hugely important. If you've got, Scott Franks is such a top writer and when you've got writing that good and the rhythms are good, and as you say, the moments where we see that he's he's really feeling and really grieving, if the structure and the shape is there for you, it's like getting in a great car and driving it. Like don't play with the rhythm, it's there, it's set up for you. That's where we're gonna see that. And the one thing about Scott, and his directing is the clarity of intent, the clarity of the storytelling is so good. It's like, we're really clear where we are and what we're supposed to think. That's not always the case. Sometimes, you know, intentions are really muddied when we watch things. We watch things and think, oh, what was that? But with Scott, it's really super clear. And it's really about trusting trusting the writing.
0: Right, and and one of the scenes that we kind of, see in different iterations is the moments where he goes into the swimming pool because that's the space that he shared with his wife um and so those scenes feel really pivotal in terms of that as well and so how did you want to go into each of those moments as this is kind of a really sacred space where he's kind of communing with the memory of her
1: well that was about going to the gym <laughs> 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 Scott Scott told me before he even showed me a script that he had this idea of this recurring theme so I was given plenty of warning to get my my stuff together but um yeah that was like um and again you know what What's really lovely is we, we have this duality because I'm passionate about the the source material and the world where Spade comes from, and Scott was doing this very clever sort of playing with the whole genre of the macho thing of the smoking of all the tropes that we know with those characters, making him older and seeing what how we can play with that as a, as a as a thing. But what is lovely is it's both it's a reinvention and a real homage the period because for me there would be nothing worse than if we start to open up Sam Spade and get to him to talk about his feelings that seems to me a million miles away from what the character and what the source material is.
0: I also I also love kind of the very dry wit to him as a character. And there's like a little bit of exhaustion with it. There's times where other people try to engage in humor with him and he's just not having it. But then at the same time, there's a moment where a priest says he's from New York and Spade's like, my condolences. Um, and so how did you want the, the sense of humor that he has to really speak about him as well?
1: Again, that's all about, I think, sort of, you know, speed of thought of, of like trusting and that the rhythms are good. And Scott wrote those great rhythms and and the wit is important. We don't you don't want it to be earnest and overwrought and everything serious. You know, those characters, those classic noir characters, they are dry. They they are very funny.
0: And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about his relationship with Teresa, who, in essence, is a, a young girl that he's asked to deliver to her father. But then when he's not able to do that, he puts her in a convent, but like continues to show up for her. And it, it evolves really beautifully throughout the series. But at the beginning, how did you find what you wanted that relationship to look like? Because it's not necessarily parental, but he is kind of the only male figure that she's had in in her life. And they're, they're not close they don't really know each other but there is some sort of connection that keeps pulling them back to one another.
1: Well in some ways it's sort of that completely appeals and it's probably why I like this genre and why I was so excited to play Spade is that it's not sentimental and here we have a relationship with this young girl and I'm you know I'm pretty tough on her, and she's a pretty tough thing as well and then you go But really, you know that there's feeling, you know that, but it's just not overexpressed. It's not. So you can play the two things all the time. You can play that deep down, you know, I do care about this girl. But on the surface, everything is tough and like, and I I love playing the duality of that and and letting you in without making it really obvious and overexplained.
0: There, there's also a great character moment for Spade at the beginning of the series when she comes to him and says I need your help and she just immediately physically grabs him and embraces him and you're kind of standing there like not fully returning it with your arms kind of outside like I don't really know how to respond to this because this isn't how I engage with people um, and so what gave you that idea of like you know I really don't think that he would go fully back in for it with her?
1: I think it's all to do with that instinct of, like, you know, the lack of emotion, the lack of, like, when somebody comes at him with a flood of emotion or, need, you know, that he has to sort of hold his thing together, really. So, and I think that's very, very spade-like. And it's not it's not that he's unfeeling. It's just that, you know, he's a character, that this is how he behaves. And what it means is when he does express, you know, or show that he cares about something it it resonates it really matters
0: yeah and it feels like his way of expression is very much through actions instead of words because there's a moment where we see him worried that she's okay and just the way that he races through the house to kind of check that she's all right in her bedroom exactly. and he sees her sleeping um, and so do you very much see him as like a character where actions create a lot of emotional expressions as well well,
1: you have to ask yourself why, you know, someone like Sam Spade or someone like, you know, Shandles Marlowe. why are they still around? Why is people still, why do they still resonate? And it has to be, it has to, it has to be the fact that they are, they have a strong moral compass. And the thing about Spade, you know, we join him, he's trying to live the quiet life. He's grieving, he wants to be quiet. He wants to sort of, you know, just be on his own and have some quiet time. But if you see something that is very wrong, he's got to act. He's got to do something about it. He has a moral, he cannot just walk away. And I think that's a big part of why these characters are still around and why we still sort of walk to them because there's nothing better than someone who has, who is trying to do the right thing and will go to whatever lengths to do that.
0: I completely agree. And I, and also one of the reasons that these characters resonate is, you know, he doesn't have the internet and he doesn't have a wealth of technology to figure out what's going on it's very much just gut instinct and what people reveal of themselves in front of him in conversation um, and so how did you want to set about creating that real observational quality to a character that just has to try and be very keyed into everything around him
1: well that was a really great note from scott when we first started working on it he said just remember that spades always one step ahead So in all the scenes, as you're engaging with these people, they reveal themselves. You keep quiet, but you you're sort of on top, like play everything like you're just that one step ahead. And it was a very good note because it just means the quality of listening is even different. You're not sort of going and tracking things. It's as if you already have an overview. It's as if you've already got there, but you're just letting people reveal stuff to you.
0: You know, and, and he is very much one step ahead of people, but there's also moments where he hasn't quite clocked onto people and he hasn't quite clocked onto information because it's been a few years since he's been so immersed in this. That is rusty. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you set about figuring out where does it kind of fit like a glove in stepping back into this previous version of himself and where do I want the cracks to exist?
1: Well, I think, again, that's, you know, that I'm helped enormously by the writing and by the way Scott wrote it. You know, he is older, he is jaded, he's not as fit. You know, there are, you know, he gets pulled into it and he might, if he has to get physical or if he has to do, you know, he has to sort of drag himself into it a little bit. It doesn't come as easily as it might have done 20-odd years ago. So that is something that we play with throughout the whole show, that, yes, Sam Spade is older. He's
0: he's a little bit tired. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, because the very beginning of the show obviously opens in that that scene with the doctor where he's getting the prostate exam, but then he's being told, you know, you need to stop smoking because of your lungs. And, and that is played into effect. Like there's a moment where we see him chasing someone and he's just physically bent over trying to gasp for breath. Yeah. Um, and so how did you want that sense of even just breathlessness to be part of it?
1: Um, that was yeah. We 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 you know Scott tracked that in as a running thing that he's just not. You know when it comes to the physical thing, he's going to do it, but he's just not quite the guy he was. And you know it's a great start because you know because you you think of Spain you think of you know the hat, the gun, and the cigarette, and suddenly first opening scene he's been told he's got to he's got to give up that the smoking's taken its toll. <laughs>
0: And, you know, you were, you were mentioning, like, obviously there are a couple moments where he he is using violence as a tool, but those scenes aren't about the violence. It's still, again, very much character beats back and forth. Um, there's a, a scene where he's interrogating someone and there are physical altercations within that scene, but it's also him very much using his, like, wit and his intelligence in it. And so how did you make sure that it was leaning forward into that side of things versus being focused on the violent aspect? Yeah, no, I think
1: Scott was not interested in, in violence for violent sake. So- you know when there is violence I mean you know I always seized it as an opportunity to a little window into what Spade might have been like back in the day you know that that was my opportunity I go oh this is I had a a running gag with Scott throughout the whole shooting which was I've been duped you told me I was playing Sam Spade I don't get the hat I don't get a gun I don't smoke I don't hit anybody like what is this and um, but that when when he gave me those opportunities that I felt had a real flavour of what maybe the old Sam's Bay was like, I I, I have to admit I, I, I relish them.
0: <laughs> I mean, you you were touching upon a little bit earlier, you know that sense of it's it's not a noir in the same way that the, you know, the Maltese Falcon is a noir from that particular time period, but there are aspects that carry through. And I was interested in if that kind of was at the back of your mind, if it was helpful to think about that tonally a little bit of, you know, it's kind of a film noir character out of water to a degree, or if it was better just to kind of not think about that in terms of tone. I think about it all the
1: time, only because I love the genre, you know, I love So I thought about it all the time, you know, I wanted to track back, yes, we're doing a reinvention, but I'm not going to go in and go and sort of ignore that source material. I I love it too much. And I want to track that, yes, we're going to see all the differences. We're going to see him in a new environment. We're going to see him like not quite the same guy that he was, but I want to feel that he came from that. Yeah.
0: I also like that he kind of Embellishes his prickliness, you know. When Teresa calls him an asshole, he, you know, he's like, "It's nothing. I've never, I've, I've never heard before." And he kind of again just like leans into it. It's not insult. He doesn't pull back when people say that. He embraces it. Um, and so, how was that a central part of him for you as well?
1: But that's another indication of somebody who's not explaining. You know, that it's very hard to to get into someone like Sam Spade because he brushes it off. He'll have, you know. The great thing about you go back and watch movies of that time is the speed and wit of the dialogue. You know, somebody says something smart, somebody says something smart, straight back at them. And in some ways, we've lost that. And you go back and look at some of the cool older films, you know, one film that I've always adored primarily for the dialogue is Sweet Smell of Success. And you watch that movie and within five minutes, it's a joy because everything somebody says, somebody tops with something sharper and wittier and the film just rips through with this really great dialogue and when you've got that to play with it's a real treat.
0: I I also love the detail in, in the location in the show where the original location for Spade's Place where it fell through and you actually offered hey like why don't you can the place that production have rented for me to live in while we're filming and so then you have this very meta experience of playing a character who was living a very peaceful tranquil life that's been interrupted and you're now in the position of everybody is on set at your location where you're
1: sleeping how, did you, know in the how did you know that about the house the I, internet's a great thing <laughs> so no it really wasn't that i offered it at all what oh. I think is, is that scott came over to do some work on the script and went this place is amazing. Went for a walk, saw the pool, saw the vineyard, went, oh my God. And then went, this is actually better than the location, it's got everything I need. And, and suddenly I was getting these mysterious bangs on the trailer door, like, yeah, the art department would like to go and see your house. I'm like, why? And they go, inspiration. <laughs> like, and I was like, okay, next minute, it's like, Ten crew people turning up after work, and I'm like, now I'm smelling a rat. Then I get the knock saying, "Any chance we can come and shoot your house?" So yeah, it was ironic. You
0: go. We're we're correcting the record before it gets too far out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't my wasn't my choice.
0: I, I also wanted to ask you about the way in which you approach scene analysis because when you were working on A Murder at the End of the World, um, like Britt Marling was talking about how when she would be going through a scene with you, that the level of an- an analysis that you would have would be the same that it would take to write a scene, in essence. And so I was just very interested in how you work with scripts and how you really break down all of the details within a scene as an actor.
1: I'm not like I can't write. I can't create, but I think I' um, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty good at notes and I've worked with a lot of directors who who would say that. I have, you know, I always look at things. I don't look at it from like a, my own character's point of view. It's not about ego. It's not about oh I want my scenes to be better. I look at the whole thing. I look at the whole how the whole where I sit in it. And then I I'm a bit of a logic monster. And I think even in the most fantastical, like crazy thing, you kind of have to have a set of rules and the logic has to be solid. You need to track, especially, I'm looking at it from an actor's point of view and I've read some scripts by some very big writers that are very highly thought of. And I think they're slight tricksters because the scenes are very cute and they're very well done and it's enjoyable, but it's really hard to play and to track. You go, I don't know how I get from there to there. I don't know how I get from there. It's great. And they have they're great, they're done with wit and verve, but they're not based in, I can't see the real way through. I go, well, that doesn't track. That guy who did that wouldn't do that or that. So I'm very, very logical. And I remember on on Murder at the End of the World, we had, I think once a four-hour zoom. And it wasn't, it was just talking through the whole, and I just had questions, not always about my part in it, but just saying to the the guys, um, so with this there, why would that, did it, how would that, and we would just do that. And again, it's not about me trying to build up or shape just what I'm doing. It's just literally being quite rigorous with how the thing, if there are any holes, if there is something that somebody would say, that wouldn't happen because of that. And I, I'm, I'm pretty good at tracking things in that way.
0: I I love that. And I enjoyed your performance in this series so much, but I love that you basically seem to be living the dream and playing your ideal character in it. Um, So it's been so fascinating to hear everything that went into it. Thank you so much, Clive.
1: Thank you. Take care.